Well, when Easter falls near St. Patrick's Day, when your worship leader is part Irish, he changes songs to make him sound like O'Danny Boy. Did you hear that? I can't even believe it. I can't believe the gall that you have, Patrick. Beautiful. Beautiful. One more thing before I jump into my message this morning. It's such a privilege to have all of you here, but especially those of you who are visiting uh, it's, like, it's like a mixture of a family reunion. There's people that I haven't seen uh, maybe once a year I see or maybe every couple of years. And dear friends, it's so great to have you with us and family of dear friends. And then also it's, it's always an honor on Easter for those who are traveling through or for those who see this as a special moment to to participate in the worship of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for visiting, making the River Churcher choice of service this morning. I was looking around in the last couple of songs, and we were all sitting, but there were a few people that were standing. And I was thinking about um, being able to go to the NCAA basketball tournament last week. My alma mater was in the, the 64 team tournament down in Providence, and so a friend of ours got us some tickets, and we happened to be sitting in the players' section, and uh, most of the people in the crowd were from New England. You know, most people don't have the time to travel in a week's notice to go see their favorite team, so there was a lot of Providence, Rhode Island guys, and New, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts people that just like watching basketball, so they're not totally interested in any specific team, and the game is going on, and there are a few choice relatives that never sat down. And the people behind them were like, could you please sit down? We're watching a basketball game. Little did they know that they were sitting behind the family section, and I could feel the family going, I am not sitting down. My boy is on the court. (laughs) This is much more than a game to me. My boy is playing. Sometimes when we're in worship, There's something that stirs within different ones of us that causes us to stand or to kneel because of our Savior. So I hope that those who stood or kneel, for those of you who haven't necessarily experienced that dynamic in a church setting, understand that it's only because sometimes there's such a thankfulness, there's such a place of worship in our hearts for what Jesus has done for me that I want to stand in attention and worship him, or I want to kneel down in adoration. So if you were behind a a family member this morning, I apologize. (laughs) Just a little bit. I want you to recognize why. I grew up in a home where, and for those of you who call the River Church your home, you've you've heard pieces of this story, but I wanted to draw attention to it again as we look at the death and life of Jesus Christ. But I grew up in a home where my parents' marriage was less than thriving. I would call it most of the time toxic. There was a selfishness. There was an independence. There was a loneliness that I grew up in in my home. My mom was sad most of the time. I remember watching my mom wash dishes far longer than dishes should be washed. Washing clothes and watching the spin cycle go round and round, not because she was so enamored by the clothes spinning, because she was just discouraged. My dad was busy, gone. My older siblings, I'm the youngest of three, were out of there. 
get out of the house as quick as they could. And I, as a kid, experienced fear and aloneness. It was not a happy place growing up in my home. Then around my fifth grade year, my mom started watching a TV broadcast called PTL. And through watching that show, she was inspired to order a new Bible. She ended up ordering a a parallel edition, which meant that there were four different translations and it had tabs on the side of it. I just thought it was the coolest Bible ever. Just like to play with the Bible because of the tabs. And she started reading the Bible. She started thinking about Jesus. And it seemed like gradually and slowly life and hope came back into my mom. Her heart and her face started to express something completely different than the world she was living in. She had found joy. I truly believe that that Bible that entered her life and that show that talked about Jesus, those truths of God and his love, slowly captured and revived my mom's heart. She met her creator. She met the lover of her soul. And she exchanged her dead-end life, her dying life, with the life of Christ. Shortly after that, my older brother began searching for God. And I, be, I believe he began searching because of my mom. And in his senior year, after a lot of high school living, if you know what I mean, my brother was fully a high school jock, arrogant, mean, at least that's how I remember it as the younger brother, a mean, arrogant soul, wild with living. But he began to search for God. He began to be, become hungry for God and for answers. And I remember my brother changing literally overnight when he asked Christ into his life. He was kinder. He was more loving. He was humble. And he had time for his little brother. I saw and witnessed my brother change. He exchanged death for life. Shortly after that, because of my mom and my brother, I started looking for peace and for joy that my mom and my brother had found. I couldn't put it into words then, but it was like light came back into our home. It's like the dark room of my family. And when I think back to my home, I think about darkness. It was like light started to shine. It was warm, and it was inviting. In the Bible, it's real life, and teaching, it's teachings about God and Jesus came alive to me. I started to go to church. In my seventh grade year, when I was 12 years old, I exchanged fear. I exchanged aloneness, hopelessness, for faith in Jesus and the amazing life that he offered. And I can tell you, as a 47-year-old man, 35 years ago, ago, something changed in my life that has never turned back. That dark room of my life was filled up with light and hope that's never gone away. I exchanged death for life. So here we are in this room, Easter Sunday, 2016, and maybe my story has touched your story in some way. Maybe you identify with my mother in her journey. Maybe you identify with my 
parents in their marriage that is far less than what they expected it would have been when they made vows on the altar. Maybe you identify with my brother in his attempt for high school happiness that didn't lead him to happiness but led him to discouragement and despair and a searching and a longing for something more than what he could find in those experiences. Maybe the story of my own life of aloneness and discouragement and hopelessness touches some of the chords and experiences that you have experienced or might be experiencing today. Or maybe you just have taken a moment to look around the world today. And depending on which lens you look through, the lens of light or the lens of darkness, you experience some of the same feelings that I experienced. If your lens is dark, it doesn't doesn't take much for you to experience the overwhelming hopelessness of a society in a world that is in chaos. We don't have to look farther than a couple of days, a couple of minutes of news that happened just then in Brussels or in the Middle East or in New York City or in Brookline or in Waltham to touch on some of the themes that I mentioned in my own story. There is a darkness that we live in. Where is the light in life? God, in the midst of this, has an answer. Amen? Some of you walked in this morning with the truth already dwelling within you. The answer already alive. And some of us walked in with a possibility, and some, some of us walked in probably because you got drug here. We all have reasons that we're here, but we're here, and Jesus is alive. And he's here speaking to you through me, through others, through the songs that we have been singing. And he asks two important questions this morning. He asks of you to answer this question of yourself. Are you dead or alive? And you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, if I'm breathing, I'm alive. I didn't come in here on a cart. I walked in here, I'm alive. I'm not talking about physically. He's asking the question spiritually. Are you dead or alive? The second question he's asking of us is a question about himself. And he's asking you to answer the question, am I, God, dead or alive? Is God dead or is he alive? And if God is alive, who is he? And do you... One and only. I said, no, are you going to stay in for the big, the, the big people's sermon? He said, yeah, and I got the best answer of the day. Out of the mouths of babes come the truth of God. Thank you, Noah. How we answer these two questions affects the whole course of our lives. It affects our eternity. And not only does it affect our lives, but it affects the lives of those around us. Because see, I was impacted by my dad's life. I was impacted by my mom's life. I was impacted by my brother's life. Your life matters. And your life doesn't just matter to you, but it matters to the ones that are sitting probably around you, who you're thinking about right now. So this morning, 
I want to let Scripture, the Scripture that the writers of the Scripture say is living and active. It's not dead, but that is alive. It's not a dusty old book, but it is a life that comes into families and people's lives and transforms the way they live in the way that they operate and exist, this living word that's sharper, the scripture says, than any two-edged sword, and that when we listen to it, it penetrates our life whether we want to or not. If you are in this room and you came willingly or unwillingly, may you know that as the word is spoken, God has declared that it has life for you if you'll receive it. I want to draw your attention to some stories about Jesus this morning. In John 11, when Jesus was alive, there's a story that's written in the book of John. The book of John is one of four gospels or stories about Jesus' life. These four stories are written by different authors, different perspectives. And John happens to be, the scripture says, one of Jesus' best friends. He's the one that uh, the days before he died leaned and laid his head upon Christ's chest. That's how close this man was. And he writes of his story and his account of Jesus' life. And he tells about a time when Jesus was doing his evangelistic and uh, journeys and he was telling people about himself and about God. And some of his close friends had sent a message to him, Mary and Martha, that one of his best friends on earth, Lazarus, was sick. These were some of his closest friends. And the messenger gets to Jesus and says, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. They're asking you to come quickly because they know if you come quickly, you can heal him because they'd seen him heal other people that were sick and he'll be okay. They could have also even said, Jesus, we've heard, we've seen you even proclaim somebody's health when you weren't near them. So you can even say the words now and heal him and he'll be okay. But for reasons that we'll find out later, Jesus didn't do what a good friend does. He didn't come quickly. Ever wonder why God doesn't come quickly in your life? And why at the point where, we, where he doesn't come quickly, we start to question whether he's real or if he is real, why he is so mean and not coming quickly to the things that we are asking for him to do right now. Oftentimes the reason that God does not come quickly in our lives is because he's got a better story than the one we want answered right now. We'll wait and trust in him. Jesus delayed his journey. He got to uh, <clears throat> the home of Mary and Martha, or the, the location of where they lived, and Martha ran to him when she saw him, and she said, Jesus, why didn't you come? If you could have come, he would have been healed. But I know that you can do whatever you want to do. And he concurs in verse 25 of John 11, and he says this, Jesus told you I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Martha, the sister of a brother Lazarus who is dead, Lazarus who is dead in the grave? Do you believe in the one you know that you've walked with, that you have seen, seen perform miracle after miracle, who you have seen um, deliver people from demons, 
who you have seen teach crowds of thousands of people truths that have mesmerized them and caused them to want to put their faith in me, who you have seen multiply the fish and the loaves of bread and do miracles that you cannot imagine, do you believe that I am the Messiah that can raise Lazarus from the dead? And his question to us this morning is, do you believe? Believe? That he is life, as he said, and he is resurrection. Not just abundant life that he promises us. He is that. But life that can resurrect the dead. Martha believes. The next sister, Mary, comes out pretty much with the same question, with the same despair. Why didn't you come? And she begins to weep. And Jesus sees her weep. He hears the questions again. And the scripture says he becomes angry. He becomes angry. He becomes angry. And I believe the scripture tells us he becomes angry because the scripture wants us to understand God's heart towards sin, sickness, and death. You see, sin, sickness, and death are not in heaven. They are not a part of his existence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are not what is eternal. They are not what is of God. And so when he sees this situation and understands that his good friend not only was sick, but that he had died, this makes him angry. Because this is what he has come back to destroy. He's not angry at Mary. He's not angry at Lazarus. He's angry at the devil. And he's angry at the sin that destroys people's lives. And then, it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He got angry, and then he wept. Now, what's going on? This guy needs counseling. No, two things are going on. He's angry because of what I described, but he's also the God of all comfort. And he understands that in the brokenness of this world, we still live in it. At the place of his anger towards sin, he understood, here's his two good friends, Mary and Martha, and his his good friend Lazarus, who's dead. He's looking at these sisters, weeping and wailing, and he has compassion for their suffering. So does God have compassion for our suffering. And it's not as the scripture says, that he's indifferent when we suffer. He's not slow, the scripture says, as some consider slowness to be. But in his perfect way and timing, he works all things together to those called according to his purposes so that we can receive and understand and know the fullness of who God is. And in this situation, they got the fullness Amen? Because what happens next is awesome. It's a foreshadowing, I believe, of what's about to happen in Christ's life. And he's, he's declaring not only with his words, I am the resurrection and the life, but he's going to demonstrate it. So he arrives at the tomb angry, it says, verse 38. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. 
We do that. The smell is horrendous. It's terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone away. Then Jesus looked up into heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you have sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! I I like my old pastor's um, commentary on this. He said, he said Lazarus because if he had just said come out, everybody would have come out. (laughs) So he had to be specific. All the rest of you stay in there, but Lazarus, come out! Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. <laughs> can you feel it in your own life? Can you feel? Can you know? Can you understand that Jesus who is alive, who spoke to Lazarus who is dead, said, come out of your grave? Come out of that which wraps you up and entangles you. Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily entangles and ensnares us. And it says, place your vision, place your your look upon the author and perfecter of your faith who rescues you. He said to Lazarus, come out. And he said to the people, take off the grave clothes because he is not dead anymore. He's alive. Been kind of silly if Lazarus walked around with linen cloth wrapped around him for the rest of his life. He's alive. Again, and so are you and me who put our faith in the living God. This act of Jesus foreshadowed what was about to come, but it also declared that this living God, Christ, the one who is alive today, speaks to your grave and says, come out. I can't do that, Pastor. I've got too much going on in my life. My life is too wrecked. I'm a mess. I'm just holding on. Well, you can hold on as long as you want to, or you can let go and let Jesus call you out. Wouldn't it have been silly? We don't have this account, but wouldn't it have been crazy if Lazarus is sitting there dead, and then Jesus wakes him up? Come out! And Lazarus wakes up, No, I'm all set. Thanks, Jesus. That would have been the stupidest thing for a dead man to look back at the living God and say, no, I don't need that. I like being dead. And yet sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time in our world, we look at a living Savior who says, come out. You're free. Come alive. And we say, no thanks. I like being So Jesus moves on from this story and he moves into the story of his own life. Luke 23, verse 26. He's now lived all the things I've already declared and even though he's been perfect in his living, even though he's been perfectly loving and caring and instructive and helpful in everything that God is and you want God to be, those who don't believe him, those who are dead on the inside who don't receive life, get angry, jealous, judgmental, and they want to kill Jesus. And so they find a way to capture him. They put him on trial. They sentence him to death. 
you can read that. You can read all that story or watch movies on that. I'm not going to go into those details. But we'll go to the place where he has now been beaten. He's been tried, beaten, and he is now heading towards his death on the cross. It says, verse um, 26, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind them, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, when, when Jesus is alive, What will happen when he's tried? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. They said, let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. It was a mocking sign. This is the king of the Jews, as he was nailed to a cross. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. And hey, why don't you save us while you're at it? But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God, even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now listen, this story is a perfect picture of humanity. Because see, there's only two people that have ever lived. There's only two people, and they're represented in these two criminals. The scripture says that all of us have sinned. All of us, any person who's ever lived, has sinned and is sentenced to die. For the wages of our sin is death, the scripture says. So all of us in this room, everybody outside of this room, every person who has ever lived, every person that's being born today, every person who will ever be born, they are one of these two people. And every single one of them is a criminal. That includes you. So when we look at these two men next to Jesus, we're looking at ourselves, sentenced to die because of crimes that we have committed that are worthy of death. The difference is the response of these two criminals. Because see, neither one of these criminals can excuse themselves from the cross. But one of these criminals mocks the living God. One of these criminals says, you know what? I'm worthy of death, but my only hope 
is Jesus. Will you help me? Which criminal are you at the cross? You say, Pastor, you offend me. I am not a criminal. I am not a bad person like whatever that bad person is on the cross. Well, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says not only what I've already communicated, but it also says even our good works are like filthy rags. Even the things that we think we are worthy of and that we're going to stand if God is really real and we stand before him and say, but God, you knew. I, I wasn't like Hitler. I wasn't like so-and-so. I wasn't like my neighbor who was just rotten. I wasn't like, I, you saw some of the, I gave to Salvation Army. I did some really good things. I thought some really good thoughts. I was a really nice person. I wasn't mean like my mother-in-law. God's going to say, it's all filthy, worthless works or deeds or attitudes without your acknowledgement of my son Jesus and his work on the cross. Scripture says that while we were sinners, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. One criminal said, prove it. One criminal said, I need you. Can I be your friend? By this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Then Jesus shouted, Father, I trust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God. And he said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Something so significant happened in Jesus' death that unbelievers, people that were just there to see the show, experienced something supernatural. So supernatural that a Roman centurion that was overseeing the execution. I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen any movies about Jesus' crucifixion, Whoever had the detail to be the one who executed a person had somewhat of a hard heart. In order to be able to see the vicious beating and destruction of life, you had to callous yourself, I would imagine, to be able to endure that kind of grotesque, brutal murder. And yet this man, in the presence of Christ when he gave up his last breath, put his faith in God because something so supernatural happened. And the crowds walked away with deep sorrow. You know, the scripture tells us that there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow that says, gosh, I'm really sad that I got caught or I'm sad that it happened to me or I'm really mad because you did this to me or all those, all those kinds of sorrow that doesn't lead to any kind of remorse. Or reflection, but then there's a sorrow that leads to repentance and faith in God. I believe that what happened at the foot of the cross was that people came into the reality that this man that was hanging there was not just a man, that he 
He was something different. He was the Messiah. Where are you at the cross? Where are you in the crowd? Now, there was a good man, a righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish High High Council. And he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. And as his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by law. Joseph was a part of the ruling council and a part of the religious community that sentenced Jesus to death. He was a part of the prestigious crowd. He was on the in crowd. He had position. He had authority. He had wealth. But he was a seeker of the kingdom of God. And when he came in contact with Jesus, he realized that Jesus was the Messiah. And when Jesus was killed, he risked his position. He risked his life. He poured out his resources. He gave one of his tombs, his his prized possessions, because he believed in Jesus. He stepped out from the crowd, and he put his life on the line because of his faith. Which one are you as Jesus is being taken down from the cross? Where are you in the crowd? Are you Joseph? Are you stepping out? Are you putting your faith out before people because you believe that Christ is the Messiah and he's changed your life? Or are you staying hidden, hiding, holding on, Hedging your bets. Thank you for the scripture that reveals this man and shows us this life of faith in the midst of a very charged and scary time in his life. So that leads us to why we're here this morning. He's risen. Amen? Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. So Jesus went into the tomb. He laid there for three days. And early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene, one of his good friends, and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said it would happen. Come see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. I believe that's what happened, because once they saw it, I don't even know if they heard the last part of the sentence. Ah, they ran off, it says. Um, It says, you'll see him here, see him there, remember what I've told you. And the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened, but they were filled with joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him. They grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. 
Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. They will see me there. Little advertisement in the middle of this message. Just want to encourage you to watch the movie Risen. What a great portrayal of this story uh, from a different perspective than you're probably used to. But the picture that they paint or the portrayal of Jesus upon his resurrection and his interaction with the disciples is awesome. It's worth worth the price of admission. I don't have any stock in that movie, so you're good. It's really, it's really good. So Jesus has risen from the dead as he said he would. Amen? The women, the women later told the men, and they were filled with joy and wonder. It says in Scripture that over 500 different accounts of Christ's resurrected body happened. There, I mean, 500 different people saw him. There's many different instances of of him revealing himself to different groups of people. This meeting in Galilee, there was another encounter where he talks to them. And then there was also the last encounter with the disciples where he visibly rose into heaven before their eyes. Dead, alive, ascended into heaven is our living Jesus and Savior. Amen. Do you believe? So there you have it. Jesus, his life, his ministry, his declarations, his death, his resurrection. People's response, either to reject or to receive. And the question lies back with us, you and me. Do we believe? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's alive and not dead? And do we have an awareness of whether we are dead or alive? We should ask that question as we conclude. As the worship team comes up, We'll finish with this this question to ponder. Am I alive today, Jesus? Or am I dead? My guess is, and it's not only my guess, I think I have pretty conclusive evidence from Scripture that if you stand before God, if you are in the room today, you say, yeah, I believe in God. It's what my grandparents believed. It's what my parents believed. I grew up going to church. And if I were to, you know, if I were to have to choose a religion, I'd choose Christianity. I'd choose Jesus. And, you know, I believe when I go to Easter services and when I go to a funeral or a wedding, I'm, I'm in the Christian crowd. My guess is, is that when you stand before God and you see him for who he really is, there might be a question in your heart. Did I really believe? Or was it something cultural? It was just a part of my growing up. Or was it something that I did when I was a kid because I was afraid? But Jesus is not really a part of my life. You see, Jesus isn't just sitting up on a throne waiting, waiting for us to get to him, is he? Jesus is alive, and it says in Scripture that he's in our hearts if we are believers. So if we're truly believers, he's living with us. So is it possible that we could actually be religious people people that even wear a cross around our neck maybe, or people who even have a Bible on our shelf, but we really don't know Jesus. There's evidence in Scripture that Jesus said that that might be true because it says that there is a time coming when people will say to me, but Jesus, we cast out demons. We did these amazing things in your name. And he says, depart from me, for I don't even know you. Well, how is that possible? That they could do religious acts, even acts as great as casting out demons, and yet Christ would say, I don't know you. I think it has to do with the difference between being religious and 
having a friendship with God. When we have a friendship with God, we come alive. As a matter of fact, if you look around, much of what is dead in our world happens at the hands of a lifeless religion. But when Christ enters our lives, he turns the light on. He sweeps out the rooms of our life and he brings hope and friendship and relationship. Jesus forgives our sins and he heals our diseases. If we claim we have no sin, 1 John says, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and he's just, and that he is Jesus, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. In our culture, we are so afraid to call something sin because we're so afraid to judge somebody who might be living a different way than we're living. Let me tell you, God is not afraid to call sin, sin, because sin, it says in Scripture, leads to death. And He wants to declare everything that leads to death in your life so that you might be delivered from death and delivered into life. It's not because He doesn't love us. The Scripture says that He loves us so much He tells us the truth because the truth sets us free. May the conviction of God be upon our lives that we would say, God, I am dead in my sin and rebellion apart from you and I need your life. Do you believe 